Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. I have learned to be content in all circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That is Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining us for this 11th bonus episode in our series, What Every Adoptive and Foster Parent Needs to Know About Trauma and FASD, with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. This series covers important topics for all of us foster, adoptive, and kinship caregivers. So if you have a notebook and a pen handy, I recommend you take some notes during these episodes. I know I am. I'm trying to keep up as I uh, guide the conversation along and scribble my notes. Uh, But feel free to pause the podcast so you can grab a notebook and a pen if you don't have one handy or just listen through and then listen a second time when you can sit and take some notes. Regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop into your inbox on Mondays. This series with Dr. Brown, our bonus episodes, um, they, they drop on Fridays. If you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would take a moment and subscribe and even leave a review. It's super simple and it takes um, just a little bit of time, not much time at all, and makes a huge impact. It helps um, other adoptive and foster and kinship caregivers find us when they search for um, podcasts about adoption and foster care. We believe that this podcast is a vital resource for parents on this journey. So I hope that you will take a moment and subscribe. Also, if you find this show to be an encouragement, we would love to know. If you have a comment or a question, please reach out to me at Sandra Flack at justicefororphansny.org. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash FASD.
now to our guest. Jared Brown, PhD, is an assistant professor for Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Jared has also been employed with Pathways Counseling Center in St. Paul for the past 17 years. Pathways provides programs and services benefiting individuals impacted by mental illness and addictions. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. Jared is also certified as a youth fire setting prevention intervention specialist, an anger resolution therapist, a thinking for a change facilitator, a FASD trainer, an autism specialist, and a mental health integrative medicine provider. It's a mouthful. He knows his stuff. Please welcome back Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared, welcome back. Hey, Sandra. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you back again for our 11th bonus episode. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, your work and research and information you're providing. So important for us parents and caregivers. I know I have been learning so much and I'm sure our listeners are as well. Um, Last week, you shared about working working memory, the post-it note for the brain and you and I were just chatting like I love that that visual that reminder to that that's what that is it's easy to remember now because I have that visual and I even you know had a conversation with my son the other day and he remembered something and I was like hey great job using your post-it note you know <laughs> your post-it note in your brain <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah, I love that. So today we are talking about trauma and cognitive flexibility. I have a feeling this topic involves transitions, perseveration. Um, I'm sure you'll fill us in, but really things that parents of kids with an FASD deal with every day. So Jared, would you define cognitive flexibility for us? Absolutely. So this falls under the umbrella of executive function, which we've talked about many times now, the CEO of the brain. This I would really describe as our our stick shift in our brain. So just use the analogy of the car driving down the road and you have a stick shift. You, you have to shift gears when you go slower, when you stop, when you go faster. So think of it as the stick shift Another analogy I would say, think of it as a tree in a windstorm. Most trees don't fall over in a windstorm. They're kind of bendable, adaptable, flexible. This is a a really critical component of adaptable thinking, flexible thinking, and a critical component of being resilient. So people are really rigid they're less likely to be resilient. And resilience is a protective factor. It helps people bounce back from trauma and stress and worry and hardship a lot easier. So think of it as a mental agility, sometimes like a mental ability to switch between thinking about two different concepts. 
simultaneous thinking? Can I shift quickly or do I get stuck on something and I just can't let it go? And you're trying to get someone to move away from that thinking. Sometimes their, their negative energy will grow and grow. They'll ruminate more, obsess, perseverate, and you try to get them off that. It could trigger a full-blown rage. Think about it too as a person's ability to be able to adjust their behavior according to whatever environment they're in. So maybe they're loud and boisterous on the playground. Can they go back in the classroom and adapt and be in a more quiet, manageable state? Or someone's like in a library or somewhere where they need to be really quiet and calm and reserved. If they can't do that, they're moving around constantly. Part of that's going to be cognitive, behavioral flexibility. Sometimes you might hear this referred to as set shifting, which is basically flexible thinking. And people are healthier when they can be more flexible and adaptable. They're more likable, I hate to say. They do better on the job. They typically have more friends. They're healthier, so they probably make better health decisions as well. And it really is having good mental agility. Interestingly, too, and I refresh my memory, Sam, I don't know if we talked, I don't think we've done a segment on theory of mind, but it is a critical component to the development of theory of mind, which is related to perspective taking and that person's ability to read social cues and understand internal mental states of other people and how their actions impact other people either positively or negatively. Yeah, I think I believe that we are going to be doing an episode coming up on theory of mind. So that's coming. Um, so is this is this the 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 flex the mental flexibility? Is this like does this come into play with multitasking? I would say yeah. If you can shift between things and you know you don't spend too much on one thing, you use your time wisely, and yet you're self-monitoring time, being aware, okay, I got five minutes left. I got to shift to something else. Perfect example would be technology. We know very well how hard it is to get some kids, especially kids with special needs, to get off the technology without prompts, reminders, and sometimes behavioral temper tantrums. So being able to shift from the online world into doing chores or washing the dishes or mowing the yard. That is really tricky in my experience with consulting on many, many cases. And it really, it's a critical component to problem solving because if you don't have good cognitive flexibility, it can really get in the way of solving problems. And solving problems is, is pretty important in our world. There's many components of this too. There's something called psychological flexibility, which if you look at the research literature, psychological flexibility really is broken down into three separate components. So one of the components is going to be awareness, having good self-awareness that maybe I'm taking this too seriously or I need to just let this go. It's hurting me right now. Good psychological flexibility equals better self-awareness. Also, it's related to openness. Am I open to other ideas, thoughts, suggestions, those kind of things? Having an open 
mindset, or am I just very stubborn and I am unwilling to receive any feedback, suggestions, or guidance from anyone else because I always think my way is the right way. And then the other component of psychological flexibility is going to be engagement. And with having good engagement, that serves a very critical role in goal achievement and really understanding our own core values. And without having good engagement, we might be less likely to achieve our goals and it could get in the way of engaging in having appropriate values, ethical decision-making, moral awareness, doing the right thing. And then there's behavioral flexibility. And they're all over, there's, they all overlap. So we have cognitive flexibility, psychological flexibility and behavioral flexibility. And with behavioral flexibility, when things are going well, we, we have non-rigid patterns of behavior. When we have behavioral inflexibility, we're probably more likely to kind of look like we're more compulsive. And we really have an, a desire for daily routines, like to the point where it could be almost pathological where if we have any shift from our daily routine, it could throw us into a full-blown anger, rage, irritability. So one thing to always keep in the back of your mind, if someone has really poor behavioral flexibility, what happens if their daily routine's out of line that day? That's a pretty good indication. And it could come off as someone being really controlling are really stubborn. So that that's kind of a breakdown of these three components. Interestingly, like if we look at um, psychological inflexibility, it oftentimes co-occurs with multiple disorders. So it's been researched within the context of substance use problems, pathological worry. So if someone deals with pathological worry, which is to the point where they're probably perseverating, ruminating, and that worry just gets in, in the way of their day-to-day -day life. Psychological inflexibility may be higher. Psychological inflexibility has also been linked to higher levels of anxiety and depressive problems, as well as eating disorders, psychosis, and chronic pain disorders, to name a few. Before I jump into like rigidity and share some case studies, any thoughts, questions, Sandra? So I, I keep thinking about getting stuck. So is this like when the brain, you know, because I've got a couple of kids with FAS and they tend to get stuck, you know, on a certain topic or a certain thing. And it's really hard to interrupt that flow. They, they have a hard time switching gears. I loved how you gave that analogy, <laughs> you know, the gear shift. Um, so th that's, that's really what it's like. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. And for some, it, I mean, it can be worse for some and better for others and fall anywhere in between um, on, a, on a spectrum. I've seen these things play out to full blown rage and attacking people all the wow. way down to minor, just they're irritable and huffing around and just come off as just very just stubborn and yeah yeah and I, I see it play out I have, a, I have a 19 year old son and he works um in our family construction business 
And just the other day, my, my husband, who would be his boss, right? His dad and his boss, um, was having a conversation with him because he was working on a project at work. My son was. And then he was asked to go get parts. And he refused to go get the parts, even though that's one of the things he does a lot on his job. So I was listening to the conversation and I was able to interject, you know, I think that, you know, this is, this is, this is an FASD thing because that he was having a hard time shifting the gears because he was assigned one thing to do. He was in the middle of doing it. And now all of a sudden, well, now you have to do this. And he refused. And, you know, being able to talk through that with him, you know, we, we were we were able to explain, I was able to kind of shed some light on, maybe instead of interrupting him and saying, go do this now, give him the time by saying, when you finish this, then we need you to do this. So is that is that how it can look, at, you know, at school or on the job? Sure, you bet. And I, one of the biggest complaints I get, emails from people, that want to like use my services for consultation is my child with FASD or autism is addicted to the internet and we can't get him off and it's causing so much distress in the family. Homework refusal could be a factor for some. Doing chores, going to bed at a good time can get in the way. This can get in the way of eating behaviors too and Refusing to eat, overeating. I mean, it can trickle down into all kinds of stuff. And and part of this, I think when you study this, learning about compulsive behaviors, obsessional behaviors, rigidity, a lot of these are cousins. They overlap, I would say. But like with rigidity, how does that person handle change? Good question, just to keep in the back of your mind. Do they have the inability to change? Or can they make the changes? Can they adapt to the demands again at hand? Do they like do are they do they have a tendency to move slower throughout the day? But when you need them to go quicker, can they do that? And an FASD brain, a lot of times they, they can't because of a lot of reasons, obviously. And rigidity can involve their actions. It can involve their behaviors, but it can also involve their opinions. So just think about these things. It's not just going to be behaviors and actions. It could be their opinions. They are not willing to hear any other perspective, and they get locked in. And when that happens, in some cases, these things can almost appear that that person lacks empathy in some cases, when in fact that's not the case. It might be they struggle with cognitive inflexibility, rigidity. And again, this stuff can really look oppositional, argumentative, stubborn, resistant. And I, I don't have statistics to back this up, but how many kids are diagnosed with like oppositional defiant disorder when in fact maybe it's really rooted in trauma and executive dysfunction, but they look like they have oppositional defiant disorder could be something just to take into account. And then these things can obviously really put fuel on the fire with conflict in whatever environment they're in, and it can get in the way of their ability to resolve conflict. And it can exacerbate interpersonal conflict, 
and contribute to more issues at work. So if they're, they're, they deal with these things on the job, there's a higher likelihood they might not have that job very long, or hopefully they have a job where the employer, it's like a supportive employer employment environment, and they really understand these behaviors. Or in the classroom, if these things keep precipitating in the classroom, what's going to happen? The kids in the, the other kids in the classroom might start pulling away. There could be some increases in bullying and teasing. If the teacher doesn't have training in some of these things, the teacher may think this, this child or teenager is doing these things deliberately and the teacher gets mad and the kid starts being labeled as a disruptive behavioral child and gets placed in special classes. Is that the right approach? Probably not. Obviously, I think coming in with a trauma-informed approach as well as an executive function approach can lead to much better outcomes. And for professionals, let's say this person is referred to like a therapist or a psychiatrist or a medical doctor, and maybe they don't have the training in some of these things, that could lead that professional to misinterpret the deficit as something else. And maybe it the person might get labeled or diagnosed with something they don't have. So lots of things to think about and consider. And I'll, I'll share one case if that's okay, Sandra, and then I'll, I'll stop for a minute and see if you have any questions. The previous case I consulted on, person had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, dealt with these issues on steroids. And most of the work I do is working with the caregivers or professionals. So I'm really trying to help increase their knowledge and awareness on these things. This particular person really had a diminished ability to comprehend reality. So a lot of fantasy development, high levels of confabulation, a lot of memory problems too which trickled down into a whole host of things. And this person had planning deficits, organizational deficits, and time management. And these things really got in the way of this person prioritizing and managing money, which then trickled down into this person having a lot of self-esteem issues and becoming like more irritated and more impatient. And this person also dealt with a lot of sleep issues and obsessional tendencies around wearing certain clothes, watching certain programs on TV, what they ate, and the people they associated with. They had a lot of obsessional tendencies, and they started to mimic the behaviors of others. And they, they just did not fit in socially, so they started to attract people that probably didn't have their best intentions in mind. And part of the issue here, and there's a, I point out all these things because these cases are complicated and there's a lot of moving parts. So you can't just come in in here and say, it's, it fixed the cognitive inflexibility, all these things are gonna be okay. There's a lot of things going on here, trauma history, sleep issues. But cognitive inflexibility, obsessional tendencies were definitely a big factor but by no means not the only factor. I'll kick it back to you, Sandra, if you have questions. Yes, yes. No, thank you. I, I was, so many things are running through my mind because I, you know, just, 
thinking about some of my children, um, other kids from, from families that I know have children adopted or um, have been in foster care. Just a lot of that. I, I've seen a lot of, um, you know, families where that oppositional defiance disorder is a diagnosis um, and, and just seeing a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. Because when, when you talked about in the case study with the planning deficits and organizing and time and, and money management and all of that, that's all part of that executive function um, piece. Um, so all of these things kind of come into play. So um, I, it just makes me, I keep thinking about our, our children who've experienced trauma, experienced prenatal exposure to alcohol. Um, you know, this is what it looks like. Um, you know, and, and so, so really these challenges, the cognitive, um, inflexibility, that's really impaired, um, or cognitive flexibility is impaired when there's been trauma, when there's been prenatal exposure, it really exacerbates um, these problems, correct? Typically, yes. I can never say 100%, but in my experience, the overwhelming majority of cases, yes. And part of that too, I mean, we talked about abstract reasoning. If someone is dealing with inflexible behavior, that's a critical component to, to having good abstract reasoning. And part of that would be creativity, logical problem solving and judgment. All of these things work hand in hand. So if someone's dealing with FASD, you're probably going to have someone who's dealing with abstract reasoning deficits, cognitive inflexibility, working memory problems, problems with disinhibition, because these are all executive function issues and everyone with FASD has executive functioning impairments to some degree. Maybe some areas work better than others, but really understanding executive function and finding out which areas need more support than others is so important. And how do you do that? Finding a, a good neuropsychologist, cognitive specialist who can do a host of testing on the individual. Because if you can obtain that data, and you know that this person is dealing with behavioral inflexibility or problems with working memory or whatever, taking that information and modifying the treatment plan, the educational plan, or even what kind of job they get. A few cases I've consulted on where the teenager or the adult with FASD was placed in a job that was fast paced and required them to shift constantly and multitask and interact with people that did not go too well and the person ended up not being successful in the job and then when that's the case then they if they're not successful then they start internalizing in some cases that they're not good enough and why even try and that's the last thing we want just didn't place them in the right job so finding the right employment the right school setting, the right classroom setting, the right therapist, whatever it is, who understands these things and can make the, the changes to the goal plan or whatever it is, you're going to find out quickly that it's probably going to lead to better outcomes. Yeah, I can. I mean, I'm, I'm gosh, so many things are running through my mind because I, I was thinking back to COVID because it was in the midst of COVID when school abruptly shut down here. 
Um, and then, you know, my, my kids were home. One of them in particular had, he just really began to teeter on the edge because it was, it was that, that sudden change and shift gears, the, the routine and the schedule was completely off. And then there was that unknown of, are we going to go back next week? Are we going to go back next month? Are we going to go back? Maybe not at all the rest of this school year. What's the fall going to look like when we resume school? And then when they did resume school, there was so many changes to the day. Um, he just really, really struggled. So um, I'm thinking that, you know, some of this, um, you know, inflexibility plays in there. Um, and he, yeah, and then even just, um, you know, we, you know, the switching gears when it comes to we, we have a, a camp up in the Adirondacks. I know my listeners often know that I record some of our shows from there. Um, but it's the day that we leave to come home. Um, so we have the routine of we pack up everything, we, you know, clean up, load the car. Um, my son has a really hard time with that. And sometimes even though we're facing a three hour car ride, he'll prefer to go sit in the car a whole hour early while we're doing all the packing up and cleaning up. And it's, you know, I know it's not because he's lazy or he's being difficult or he doesn't want to help. Um, I figured out pretty early on that it's that transition from we've been here having this wonderful, peaceful time. Now we're transitioning to going home and he just gets stuck and just is unable to function in that middle space of leaving to go home. Could that be, you know, would you say that that's part of this cognitive inflexibility? It seems like it could it also be that he's so at peace up there and there's some level of sadness kicking in too on top of the difficulty with transition. Yeah, that could be too. I agree with that. And then I gave the example of my of my other son who at work um though, you know, some of us, you know, my husband knows and understands the disability. Other co-workers do not. So they don't really like it when, you know, he's the younger guy on the job, but he'll, he'll, you know, when he said, I will not go, I'm not going to do that because he was told to do this other task. He's in the middle of that other task and just could not switch gears. And there was a day, I do remember a time where he was out, they sent him out for parts. He had a list of places to go. He uses his phone for directions, but he called me in distress because one of the places that he went didn't have the item he was sent to pick up. And he had a hard time then pivoting from then going on to the next place on the list because he was sort of stuck at the one place because he really didn't know what to do since they didn't have the thing he was sent to pick up. He had, he, he, he was so frustrated and, you know, on the verge of melting down. And it took a lot of coaxing for me to get him to understand, leave there. You can leave there, even though you didn't finish that. Leave there and go to the next place. It's okay. D does that sound like it could be some of that, you know, that hard time switching gears? Absolutely. Yes. And there's a couple of cases I've consulted on in the last year or two where something similar with the job where that shifting on the job ended up this person getting fired, another one getting transferred to another location. And I think the employers there just thought this person was very stubborn and not willing to follow the rules or directions when in fact it was rooted in cognitive inflexibility, as well as I think 
some perspective taking deficits and that lack of give and take and being able to read the social cues so that there's some other things to think about there and you brought up covid covid's a perfect example of the need for all of us to be adaptable and flexible and there's actually been a several studies published the past couple years on neurodevelopmental disorders and covid and how just the shift and all of the stressors has been even harder on those populations the first podcast i ever did for natalie's podcast was on covid-19 and fasd we really dug into all of these things and there's a couple articles that have been written specific about fasd and covid there's several that have been written about autism and covid people can just go online and google COVID-19 and neurodevelopmental disorders, you'll find a lot of readings on that. And the research is pretty clear. It's been very difficult for people to be home, back to school, home, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. All of that, all of the stress around that put added stressors on a lot of families too. So hopefully the worst is over with COVID. It's tough to know, but that is a perfect example of the need for all of us to have flexibility. Yeah. And one thing keeps coming to my mind because I, I had, and you're probably familiar with the Diane Melvin book, Trying Differently Rather Than Harder. And there's that saying that this is a lot of this, especially when we were giving the examples of the job, um, on the job things, it's not can't. It's won't. I'm sorry. It's, I said it completely backwards. My goodness. It's not that we, it's not that these individuals will not perform or will not do the tasks. It's that they can't really. It looks like they are refusing. It looks like they're defiant. It looks like they're stubborn, but they really, their brain really has a hard time shifting gears to that next activity or that next thing that they're expected to be able to do. Yep. I think looking through the neural developmental, the neurobehavioral lens will help us better understand these things and help us have more patience and kindness. And then that's a big component to intervention too, for people that get stuck, kind, calm, patient, and curious. I think we can't go wrong with those approaches. Yeah. Well, speaking of approaches, then what can we do as parents if we're raising children with, uh, with FASD or, um, you know, another with the trauma, um, any NB that, like you mentioned, the neurobehavioral, um, what are some things that we can do that will help our kids when they're having a hard time with that flexibility? I think, first of all, really understanding the building blocks of coping. What, like, what are the actual building blocks of teaching people how to cope? Flexible thinking is one of the main components of good coping. Impulse control is another huge component. So teaching people impulse control, self-regulation, the ability to delay gratification, learning how to be patient, and learning how to be bored. Those are very important. Flexible attention is another component. Being adaptable in our, our attention but also learning how to stay focused on what we're doing by engaging in an activity or talking to someone as well. Part of coping is also learning how to recognize emotions and label them 
and understand them. Part of the issue in this population is perspective taking, theory of mind, alexithymia, attachment issues, got to understand those topics, and learning calming relaxation body techniques too. Maybe if we get stuck, that should be a trigger that maybe I need to just stop for a minute, take a break, take, take some deep breaths, maybe go for a walk, listen to some music, learn how to label or name my emotions. I'm feeling really stuck right now. I'm really angry. I'm frustrated. Just teaching those basic things are some of the building blocks. We've talked about metacognition, using some metacognition training, helping people to be able to know about their own knowing, think about their thinking. And metacognition is associated with increased self-awareness, social adaptability, and self-control, to name a few. I think it's also very, very important to understand processing speed. So, so a lot of people, at least in my experience, who've had extensive trauma histories and and are diagnosed with a neurodevelopmental disorder are probably going to have lower processing speed ability. So the last thing we want to do is come in and talk so fast using all these words, even our body language, if we're moving fast and lots of things going on, all of that information can overwhelm their working memory. It's like a bottleneck or a traffic jam in the brain. So if we're coming in and asking them to multitask or multi-step instructions, that can put fuel on the fire as well. Another thing that people, I don't think, realize how important it is when we're talking about all, all of this is choice-making deficits. So they may get stuck on something because they can't make a choice. There's a lot of literature in the autism world on choice-making deficits, not much on FASD, but a lot of people with FASD struggle with making choices in my experience. Choice-making deficits can get in the way. And when someone is dealing with choice-making deficits, they may have more working memory impairments. They may have some increased difficulty in planning and time management and problem-solving. And it can get in the way of them initiating something, knowing when to start, when to stop, who do I initiate it with, who do I don't, do I understand the, the consequences if I don't make a choice. And this can also get in the way of self-determination, decision-making, and independent living. Part of helping people with these things too is building resilience. And part of resilience is focusing on adaptive and positive coping strategies and teaching that person how to be flexible, how to have a good self-concept, helping them be able to bounce back from that, and helping them really learn how to stay calm under pressure and forming a really healthy support system around them is one avenue to take. I can give a couple more case studies if that's helpful or, or go a little bit deeper in any of those topics. Yeah, well, let's, uh, I'd love to hear a case study. Yeah, another case study, this person was on the autism spectrum. 
and really struggled with motivation. And to everyone around this person, I think it looked like the person was lazy and just didn't want to do anything. And this person had a real hard time setting realistic goals and sticking with commitments and following through and also keeping a positive attitude and mindset. And part of the issue was cognitive inflexibility, but also the person was dealing with higher levels of loneliness, depression, sleep problems. And this person appeared to be like abusing like sugar and caffeine, like it was going out of style. So this person, what, what seemed to help after talking to this person's team, this person learned how to engage in positive self-talk and self-encouragement. And this person started to learn how to be more patient with listening to instructions of other people. And this person got connected to some volunteer activities and some other social support outlets where they were staying more socially active. So this helped bring down the loneliness and depression a little bit. I believe this person got connected to a sleep specialist where they were able to help this person get a better sleep schedule and address some of the underlying issues. And this person got connected to a nutritionist where they were trying to help this person lose weight, eat healthier, manage their daytime fatigue and blood sugar levels. And this person got into reflective journaling and going for walks more and reducing screen time. These things all made a huge difference in this person's life. And again, it's not going to be probably one thing that's going on that's making these things worse. And there's probably not going to be one intervention that's like the magic intervention that's going to make it all better. This person was working with multiple professionals from multiple different lenses and doing a lot of different interventions. And that's when you started seeing some progress with this person. Can I, can I ask Jared about the, the, how old was this individual? An adult in the 20s. Adult. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cause see, now I'm, I, I'm, you know, in some of these here, I can like picture one or more of my own kids <laughs> and, but I have teenagers, teenage boys. And then there's that dismaturity where on a lot of levels, they are much younger than, you know, I have a 17 year old who's like a seven year old, a nine year old or a 19 year old who's more like 10 or 12. So it's almost like they don't care about the healthy eating. They are happy to have the sugar. They, they don't care about, you know, when I try to get them to let's take some deep breaths or let's go for a walk or let's do some physical activity. It's like, they don't want to do any of that. They don't care. So it's kind of like, is it because, you know, really a seven or a nine year old, you know, they want the junk food. They, you know, they want to go on the screen time. Is it, does dismaturity, does that play a part in whether the individual is really open to getting some help and applying these strategies? Like I see where it maybe would be effective as they're older, but it's a little challenging when they're teenagers, plus they're, you know, they have that dismaturity piece. So it's hard to get them to cooperate with any of these things. Of course, that's a huge barrier. Another barrier, the abstract reasoning, the inability to connect the dots on what I do today and how it may impact me five years from now or 10 or tomorrow. Another component is going to be their ability to understand and use language and process information. So whoever's teaching the intervention 
are they modifying it to that person's developmental, social, and emotional age? And another critical component too, how is it being reinforced positively or negatively in the home by caregivers, by teachers, by other siblings in the friendship network? So a lot of these individuals are very gullible and naive and suggestible and confabulate and acquiesce and are compliant in a lot of cases too. So we really need to be aware of what they're exposed to online, what they watch, their movies, and what other people are modeling to them. So that has a lot to do with it as well. Wow. Yeah. Such, such good, good information, um, Jared, as always. So, and so much of it so that, um, you know, it's an abundance of information that is just vital for us to know. And I know we can go back and listen to these episodes again. One of the great features of the podcast, if you don't catch it all, if you didn't have time to take notes, but really Jared, as we wrap up, you know, give us like the top three, like what should parents, if you're raising a kiddo with an FASD, um, you know, and this, this inflexibility, we're very familiar with that, you know, especially you've, you've described it and we're now, you know, able to put a name on it. I, I remember when I learned the, the word perseveration because I was like, that is, it has a name. <laughs> I live with this all the time, you know, and it's, it's constant, but I didn't realize it had an actual name. And that just helped me to realize that this is part of this disability. But, but, you know, what are, what are three steps? If you could give us a list, just three simple things we could start doing today to help our kids improve cognitive inflexibility. If they're having a really hard time with this, what's the top three we should be focused on? I hate to keep sounding like a broken record, but get good sleep. There's actually research literature to support that bad sleep can be fuel on the fire for rumination, perseveration, these kind of things. So if the person is not sleeping well, work with a sleep specialist, figure out what's going on and get better sleep. Not a lot of literature in the FASD world on digestive health issues, but there's a ton in the autism world. And there's some research to point to the fact that digestive health issues may exacerbate some of these behaviors. So it might be helpful to really take a good look and work with a doctor or nutritionist if you're noticing digestive health issues or unusual patterns of behavior with food or food insi- like in like sensitivities or gluten intolerance, those kind of things that, that might play a role in this. Yeah, the sugar piece too. I know we're going to have an episode devoted to the sugar. Yes, definitely. And then the other thing is movement, exercise has been shown to help the brain shift better. So if you're teaching an intervention and the person is stuck, what I've heard in cases I've consulted on, some some group homes I've consulted on or professionals have actually gotten that client connected to equine therapy, animal-assisted therapy. I can think of one case I consulted on. They got the client involved in, in like an exercise program where they went swimming once a week. That seemed to really help. And they went for walks a lot when they were teaching an intervention, and that seemed to help. Again, before implementing any of this, talk to your healthcare provider and make sure it's okay medically. Those would be three 
three basic things that we all need, but the research supports it can help with some of these things. Yeah. I can't help but think with the sleep too, if you have an individual who has that inflexibility, if they're perseverating on something, that can actually interrupt sleep, can it? Absolutely. Because if you're going to bed at night and you have something stuck in your head, and let's say it's something stuck in your head that's sad or scary or it makes you angry, that perseveration or rumination can grow and be a snowball effect. And before you know it, hours have gone by and you're just thinking about this. And the more we think about it, that can activate our stress response system, aka our HPA access, which then can produce more cortisol or stress hormone. And that's the last thing we want before bed. Then we're alert, we're tense, and then we're probably not falling asleep too good. And I, I, one more thing, Sandra, I'll add a fourth thing, reduce screen time. Without a doubt, I can feel it in myself. If I'm on the screen again too much at night, that is not good for my thinking, my energy, my mood. Too much screen time, especially in the evening hours, is a threat to emotional social, behavioral, physical health. Absolutely. I mean, I, I just feel like these are all so linked. Um, and I agree, parents, it's, it, we must understand, you know, F FASD, if you have a child who's been prenatally exposed, the neurobehavioral part, we have to understand the brain um, and, and understanding these individual topics as you've been breaking them down for us, because when we can understand cognitive inflexibility, um, then we can realize that some of these behaviors, our kids aren't, they're, they're not oppositional, they're not being defiant, they're not being lazy or being difficult on purpose. It could be literally their brain is just having a hard time shifting gears. And and the, the list that you just gave us, the, the sleep, the digestive health, the movement, um, reducing the screen time can help improve a lot of this. Um, and at the same time, parents have to be educated about these things so that they can be looking through that that lens, that correct lens. Um, anything else before we before we wrap it up, Dr. Brown? I'm looking forward to our future discussions as well as the topic of excessive sugar consumption and sugar sweetened beverages and how in some cases it could be fuel on the fire for some of these things we've been talking about. Yeah, and I can I can see it at my house. So I can't wait till we get to that topic. Um, again, Thank you so much for breaking down another vital subject for us today. Um, next week, we are talking about trauma and information processing. We talked a little bit about that today. Um, like I said, I know my boys with FAS suffer with that slow processing pace. So I can't wait till we tackle that one in our next episode. So again, Jared, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Honored. Thank you for allowing me to. Appreciate it. Thank you. Wow. Another amazing episode. I really hope that you all are getting as much out of these bonus episodes with Dr. Brown as I have been um, getting out of them. And again, I know that a lot of times when he, I ask him to break it down in the end, just give us three things to be focusing on. Um, sleep almost always comes up. Digestive health almost always comes up. Um, you know, today he also added that importance of movement exercise. We all kind of know, right, for ourselves, exercise can decrease stress and increase creativity. But with our kiddos who are struggling with this, it can also really improve 
all of these other issues that we've been talking about. And again, screen time just aggravates, exacerbates all of these challenges that we're having with our kids. So reducing screen time, we can actually see improvements. And I can't stress it enough that parents must be, um, you know, we really need to be educated, um, aware of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, neurobehavioral um, conditions, um, because it plays such a role. How that, that prenatal trauma from the alcohol exposure and ch early childhood trauma all plays a role in how our kids' brains work. So we really have to be looking through that neural behavioral lens to understand that this isn't just a defiant, lazy, difficult, oppositional kid who's making bad choices and doing bad things on purpose. It could really be that their brain just can't do the things that we're expecting them to do. And especially with an FASD, you know, FASDs are invisible disabilities. So they can, you know, you're not going to just be able to tell by looking. It's, you know, when we start interacting, if any of these things that we've been talking about on these bonus episodes are resonating with you, like, like me, are the lights going off? Are you hearing the bells and whistles? Like, you know, I'm living this every day. This is what's going on at my house. I'm very familiar with this. I didn't know it had a name. But yet, you know, you're learning about it here um, that, that, that these are very important topics for us to not only know about, but learn how to apply um, these interventions, these these tactics um, and, and look through this lens. So vital in helping us to be able to help our kids, support our kids, accommodate our kids, advocate for them at school. Um, help them if they're in, if you have teenagers and they want a job. These are things that are going to have to be, um, you know, understood and, and, and brought to the attention of any employer so that they can um, work with our kids or be open to that. Because if not, it will rear its ugly head on the job as it can at school and our kids will struggle and we want to help them be successful. So I appreciate all that Dr. Brown is bringing to these episodes. And I really hope that you are getting as much out of it as I am. So thank you for joining us again today for this, this bonus series with Dr. Brown. Um, today's topic was cognitive flexibility. If you have an individual prenatally exposed to alcohol, you may be very aware that there's a whole lot of inflexibility going on. This was such an important topic for us parents and caregivers. And be sure to join us next time when we talk about information processing, what it is and how trauma and FASD affect it and how it impacts our kids. Because we talked a little bit about it today, but a, a, a primary characteristic of an FASD is slow processing pace. So Dr. Jared's gonna break that down for us next time. Remember our regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast drop on Mondays. Be sure to catch those episodes along with these bonus episodes. Uh, and be sure to let other foster adoptive and kinship caregivers know about this podcast so that they can be encouraged and equipped and feel supported as well. And if you enjoyed the show, be sure to let us know by subscribing. Uh, and we want every adoptive and foster parent and kinship caregiver to be able to find this podcast easily. And when you subscribe and when you leave a review, it helps us kind of come to the top of the list there. Um, so we're easier to find. Now, in addition to our hope for the FASD journey 
virtual support community that you heard about earlier, we are offering an introduction to FASD training. It's an, we offer it online or in person. I've created a 90-minute training that I teach, um, and it's really for parents, professionals as well, but I'm really focusing on this one for parents. Um, it will be offered, the next one is offered online on October 27th. Um, you can check it out. If you register, you can register at justicefororphansny.org backslash or forward slash, whatever the slash is called, events. So it's on our page under events because it's the most recent upcoming event. Um, but you can find it there. Um, it is October 27th at um, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And you can sign up for that. And it's a great introduction to FASD, whether or not you have a kid that's diagnosed or not. Um, you know, if you're not sure if this is something that you're dealing with, even if you're just an adoptive and foster parent and you, you want to know a little bit more about this, just in case um, a kiddo comes through your home and into your family that maybe was prenatally exposed. Um, and, and quite if you are a foster parent, you're most certainly going to encounter this and it will help you to understand it, identify it, and be able to support the kids that come into your home. So that is October 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. It is the Introduction to FASD Workshop. Again, just go to justicefororphansny.org slash events to register. And I hope you'll check out My Family's Kinship and Ukrainian Adoption Story in my award-winning book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. It won a Golden Scroll for 2022 Memoir of the Year at the Advanced Writers and Speakers Conference. Uh, it's available wherever you buy your books. And if you do purchase it on Amazon, please go back after you read it and leave a review. I would greatly appreciate it. I have a goal of 100 reviews. I believe I'm up to 68 presently. So your review would be a huge blessing to me. If you would like a signed copy, which would include a special gift bookmark, and I mail that out to you myself, you can get a signed copy at sandraflack.com, where I also blog. You can read my blog, read more about me, and contact me for speaking opportunities. Uh, also, a shout out to our Care Portal County sponsors that help Justice for Orphans, our nonprofit, uh, do what we do to help support um, children and families in crisis. So those businesses are Tri Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Coxsackie, and Cullman Insurance Agency. Be sure to find and follow Justice for Orphans on Facebook and Instagram. I am there as well at Sandra Flack. And I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.